yeah, theoretical physicists also tend to get their hands cut off like Jedi. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing, but it seems <laughs> seems likely. there. Good morning. I enjoy having the window open. I mean, this is going to get us in trouble with environmentalists, but I do like to have the window open and the heater on. Just oh, a little well, bit. I'm that, that also gets you in trouble with the second law of thermodynamics. If that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <We've> got, <laughs> sorry, we've got a waste heat problem going on there but now the heat now the heater's on this side of the window obviously mm-hmm. so we some of the heat goes out the window but uh yes that's right but i so i guess it depends whether yeah are, are you opening the window to cool things down or heat things up i guess but um mostly to have fresh air in spite of the drunks screaming outside and the car oh cars. that is that is one of the special joys of life in new york yeah is the uh the trunks. We had somebody threw like M80s, giant fire, <laughs> giant firecrackers, and when that thing blew up, it was so loud. Oh wow! Okay, it was it was impressive. I uh, was noticing, by the way, um, to jump to our one of my favorite topics, space. Um, we I always have said this in the past five years, more than five years even, but like we are living in a golden age of space exploration. Um, And this week at Jupiter, the Juno uh, spacecraft, you know, doing these um, kamikaze-esque dives over, uh, yeah, close to the the atmosphere of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, it really is. Uh, extraordinary kind of stuff. And well, one of the things that I always um, find interesting about these these kinds of uh, planetary missions is the lead time is huge, right? It's it's years. Yes. So the people who, you know, conceived this mission were working, you know, 20 years ago. And then the people who launched it, you know, 10 years ago. And then finally the results are coming back. So, you know, some of the scientists who were working on this project were like little children when it was first imagined. Um, and I, I feel like there aren't many things as a civilization we do well, like on long time spans. <laughs> <That's right>. So <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's kind That's of true. nice to see. Yeah, they are like, um, our, like uh, uh, you know, always was fascinated by cathedrals that took, well, it's funny, I grew up in um, near Washington, D.C., where the um, Washington Cathedral um which has since been finished, amazingly. But it, whenever it was started, I don't know, nineteenth uh, century, early twentieth century, um, was always went very slowly, um, perhaps by design. I don't know. And it was going to take, mm-hmm. maybe it would have taken hundreds of years, right? And yeah. uh, to build, and and we know that going into the past, some cathedrals I think were built or just continued yeah, to be built over, over thousands, right? I mean, sure. Notre Dame in Paris is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how long that took, and um, they get renovated occasionally every like five hundred years or something. Right. Where there's an earthquake. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyway, I experienced yeah. that growing very, very, very slowly. Um, and uh, yes, this, I actually worked. You know, I worked as an intern at NASA 
at the Goddard Space Center for a little while. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I would be there. There would be any number of programs that I was, you know, put to work on uh, printing out blueprints or whatever it was or testing um, circuit boards and things like that, that mm-hmm. most of them aren't even around anymore. I mean, that's the other thing is that they're, we are seeing the missions that made it all this time through their gestation right. period of mm-hmm. decades. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Many, 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 many um, maybe permanently in that development period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just never go anywhere. Or right? literally yeah. get killed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the reasons I ended up sort of the catalyst for my deciding to switch from science to my uh, similar love of um, film was uh, I was on a project that I saw... actually. I don't know if I was actually on this particular project, but I saw guys whose project was canceled after mm-hmm. many, many years and how sad they were and dejected. And yeah, just, yeah, that's right. And there must be, you know, medieval architects that felt the same way about their cathedral, right? Oh. Um, and there's actually, you know, there's this uh, uh, this wonderful essay comparing uh, medieval cathedrals and modern potter, particle accelerators. Um, kind of making the argument that in, in both cases, there are these, uh, these massive achievements that take a really long time to do and sort of the resources of a whole society dedicated to one, um, one goal that's kind of ephemeral, right? It's not like, it's not like a highway where, okay, we've got the highway, now we can drive places. It's now we've got a cathedral and you're like, okay, so what do we do now? Well, we do, I don't know, religion stuff in it. And you're like, okay, we've got a particle accelerator now. What do we do? Well, we science stuff in it now. Uh, it's sort of idea that's, um, you know, th- th- these are tang- tangible evidence that our civilization has dedicated itself to something uh, ephemeral and intangible and sort of bigger than ourselves. Interesting. So, the the uh, particle accelerator it's built with they isn't there usually at least there's one i mean th- th- there are specific, like they know oh if we had more power we could test this particular property better oh sure yeah right, right. um yeah so i think the analog there would be uh you know cathedrals are built with particular religious rituals in mind, right? Like right. we need to be able to have this many people sit in mass or we need to be able to have a ceremony off in the East wing at the same time we're having a ceremony in the West wing. Right. Um, these are clearly things that are, that are kind of settled out ahead of time. Yeah. Although I, I think also um, I'm no expert in um, a history of cathedrals, but, but I do love architecture <laughs> and I have read a lot about them. Um, and I think that part of the, there may have been those practical things that yes, that that was in there. Um, for instance, the ambulatory, as they call it, right? This sort of um, mm-hmm. outer ring uh, goes around the pews, you know, on the sides, and there'd be different um, apses or altars, you know, for, right. for praying to particular different for different things or to different saints or whatever. Um, but another aspect was similar to building the Empire State Building or something. We, mm-hmm. you know, this is going to be a gigantic object that can be seen from all around oh, that's right that, yeah that'll impress the heck out of everybody that's right yeah but this our uh, town is important you know? the best yeah and actually i don't know i may have already told this story on one of these episodes bob wilson the first director of fermilab i told the story but when he's trying to get funding for fermilab Oh, but tell it again. That was good. So, um, so back in the early days of uh, you know particle physics, Fermilab was going to be the first big national particle 
physics laboratory. Um, and he goes to Congress to ask for funding. And Congress says, so how will this project help national defense? Um, because that was kind of the deal, right? Physicists, uh, we, we give physicists lots of money and then they build cool weapons for us. Uh, so they expected Wilson to say something like, oh, it'll help with, you know, antimatter generation or something. And instead he says, uh, this will help national defense because this is what makes this country worth defending. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was this firm defender of this idea that uh, science should not be about practical application, much less military application, but rather it's just one sort of one of the highest goals we can have. It's it's like music or art. Um, It's it's what makes life worth living to think about these things. Yeah. So if that were, if we took that literally, it's you. Let's say it means that without that, taken to the extreme, if we right. don't build this gigantic thing, which has purpose but also is you know impressive in its <laughs> scale, um, right. an extraordinary thing for humans to be able to build, um, to build. So the country isn't worth defending. <laughs> <laughs> Right now. Well, that's right. I mean, that, that would be an interesting conversation to have on the floor of the House of Representatives, right? right? Where it's like, you know, Traitor. we should just cut the military budget because there's nothing worth defending here anymore. Uh, and, you know, if you kind of look around and you're like, well, all we've got are Hardy's franchises and keeping up with the Kardashians. Right. Maybe we don't really care. About Open the, the doors. <laughs> Lower the shields. Let, turn off the engine. Let it, be, <laughs> it will just going to um, be a drift. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, a society without um, uh, without science or without art um, would be weird. And actually, uh, you know, I, this is actually one of the things I think about um, with the, the eternal tension between Star Wars and Star Trek. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's in Star Trek. There's lots of scientists, right? There's people right. building right. new devices and coming up with new ideas. Right. In Star Wars, there really aren't scientists. Right. Well, as, and as we know, as I'm sure a bunch of fellow nerds are saying, Star Trek is science fiction. Star Wars yeah. is fantasy. Exactly. Right. And, that's, and I think that's one of the interesting, um, uh, one of the ways, you know, you can tell the difference, as it were, right? Are, are there stories about learning new things and exploring new worlds or is about or is it about taking the stuff we've already got right. and telling cool epic stories oh okay now in star wars is this is very interesting because in star wars is defense star wars is star wars apostrophe star wars is um, right. <laughs> in the defense of star wars um the uh one thing about fantasy is that um you know of course just like all types of literature there's, you know, different uh, categories or different modes. For instance, in science fiction, there's hard, but they call hard SF, hard science fiction, sure. which is yep. really mm-hmm. tries to stick very rigidly and talk a lot about known scientific facts. Mm-hmm. And kind of what we're, I feel like we're, we do. Well, we kind of do. Speculative yeah. fiction. You really take a mm-hmm. lot about what we know and you learn a lot about science by reading this book. And then it also, it's a thought, basically, it's a thought experiment. Right. In fantasy, some fantasy t- takes its magic um, seriously and says, oh, right. you yeah. know, Patrick Rothfuss, I think, in particular, and mm-hmm. some of the great um, writers. Yeah, they, it has rules. 
Right. So and they think through carefully what, what are all the rules of this, right? That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, I think Game of Thrones does that. Um, okay. And Star Wars, I feel like the big, you know, they always call it the big what if. If you're going to write science fiction or fantasy too, I suppose, um, there's the what if and, and the great uh, guru, writing gurus and authors, maybe even H.G. Wells talked about this said take one thing don't go right. crazy and invent a lot take one thing and extrapolate a world from that one idea mm-hmm. one idea and, and uh in star wars it's the force you know sure. i think that uh, the mm-hmm. uh and and in the later it's been interesting actually because in these later these newer series you start to have this uh force sensitive concept where you have people right, where that they're not, not they're the not Jedi. Jedi, but they can they can do stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the prolet the uh, the proletarian the <laughs> democratization of the magic. Yeah, maybe they're uh, the the force sensitives are, are the engineers to the Jedi's physicists, right? The oh, the, the, yeah. the Jedi's understand the deep principles and can come up with new ways of. Of, of you know grokking what's happening in the universe and then the engineers are like oh but i can build this thing out of that right and they say right. right you know steve jobs doesn't know any quantum physics but right. his machines run on quantum physics right right or or even like the jedi are the um theoretical physicists there aren't many mm-hmm. of them at least in our um current the current state of the Star Wars universe. Right. <laughs> the Jedi have been thinned mm-hmm. out. Um, so they're like theoretical physicists. They, they also seem to work alone a lot. Oh, um, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. They're very deep thinkers. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly there is a monk-like aspect to it and a guru aspect to a yep. theoretical right. physicist, especially mm-hmm. someone like Einstein or Bohr. And mm-hmm. um, they can see, it, it's as if you took, what the theoretical physicists can see, you know, Einstein could see all these things about how the universe worked and he could imagine how you would manipulate it um, mm-hmm. accurately. But so the Jedi just sort of actually can do it. Okay. You yeah, know? I could buy that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. Theoretical physicists also tend to get their hands cut off like Jedi. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing, but it seems seems likely. Anytime right? they try experimentalism, that <laughs> that's right. <laughs> is that something I'm trying? Um, yep, I could believe that. Now, uh, actually, this is so for our audience. Let's let's for those who don't know, what are we talking about? There are two kinds of scientists. Sort one, you could break them down into two kinds: experimentalists, right, and theorists. Yep. Is that right? Um, and that, that's right. Yeah. And then, as all, as with all categorization, you can split them further, right? If you're right. so inclined. Right. Um, Basically, but generally, the, the theorist yeah. sits. Uh, yeah. Even still to this day, I feel like they, the ones I talk to, they say, "Yeah, you know, we pretty much sit and stare out a window." Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, they sit and think about things, and they work out equations, and yeah. um, uh, and then the experimentalists are the people who work with machines. Right, yeah, the they actually who, try who, things out. That's right. Who yeah. build the devices and yeah, actually check to see um, what's going on. And that, you know, that that split is actually more significant than it used to be 
So it used to be that physics wasn't so specialized and you would expect someone to be able to do both categories. Uh-huh. That was just obvious, right? You, right? you would come up with the ideas and you would test them or you would mess around in the lab and you would find out, find things that you wanted to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't until physics gets big and well-funded that it's reasonable to think someone could spend all their time doing just one thing. Uh-huh. Um, the theory, I'm curious, uh, I was, I was sort of imagining, what the if, mm-hmm. you know, um, only one of these existed. And then I was like, well, which one would it be? Uh, and then I thought, okay, what if we only had the experimentalists? We didn't have the theorists. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that is probably how the world was until, like, is Galileo and, or Galileo and Copernicus, these guys, uh, the first... Well, they were experimentalists too. But well, Galileo when, when does theor, like a theory, theoretical physicist when does that emerge? Well, so um, the the short answer is uh, late nineteenth century that that was a category. Kind of before that, if you were a person who just sat around and thought about stuff, you were probably a mathematician, and then if you you happen to do if your math happened to bear on the real world then that would be relevant to physics too but if you introduced yourself as a theoretical physicist that would be a really weird thing to do until say the early 20th century um so because like somebody if you take somebody like galileo or einstein um they or see galileo or newton sorry um they are doing everything they're both doing stuff with their hands and thinking and working with math Um, and i think that's that's one of the things that makes modern science kind of what it is you know around the time of people like newton sometimes called the scientific revolution is this idea that that both of those things are useful you need to be able to work with your hands and you need to be able to work with your mind um you know before that there had this kind of Aristotelian division of philosophers or the people who sit around and think about things. And then there's people who actually do stuff. And there's a definite hierarchy in that Aristotelian scheme. And I should say it's the opposite of the one we have today, which is the Aristotelians say the the people who are worth defending (laughs) are the philosophers the people who sit around and truly understand the nature of things. Um, But uh, and then the people who work with their hands are messy and not respectable and such. Right. Uh, whereas na- nowadays, you know, we're really excited about people like Elon Musk who who build stuff and people who just sit around and think about things, you know, can't get good reservations at the restaurant. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, although you could say people like these great innovators, um, they were vision, they were seeing things as well as doing things. But um but truly, right, truly theoretical something. I mean, so going back to our cathedrals thing, um, yes. the, the people who built the cathedral, mm-hmm. uh, the architects and the uh, craftsmen, I guess they right. were Muslim men, um, had tremendous physical knowledge that they learned basically through experiment. They had been learned through experimentation and passed on mm-hmm. and, right. and improved generation after generation. The architects and engineers um such as they were they just understood uh, what would, and, and in fact they would test things sometimes they say okay well let's pile up these stones and let's oh, see course, how, how yeah. tall we okay. could build it and there were there were failures and then they had to mm-hmm. learn um but the thinkers would have been priests i guess right 
yes, or bishops or some of the person who says we we need to do this thing and it should look like this. Well, I guess even even in sense of in the society, the ones who tried to figure out how things worked um, would say uh, it might be maybe it's a little easier to imagine if we go to like uh, pantheistic (laughs) Greece or something. Oh, well, the it seems like Zeus likes this and Aphrodite likes that and mm-hmm. is that right well I mean it could be and then I think that you know the critical distinction is the people who make that kind of theological reasoning right we we need to do this to make Aphrodite happy um, are probably not the people with the chisel who right. are actually making the stone craft right, right. Um, and that's and I think you know, for most of Western civilization, that distinction was obvious. That is, you wouldn't want a thinker building stuff and you wouldn't want a builder thinking about stuff either. Um, and I think that's one of the great, um, you know, kind of syntheses of, of modern science. It's the idea that both of these are pretty useful and it would be useful to have, if not the same person doing both, at least those people talk, talking to each other. Yeah. And then and just in terms of coming to understand the physical world we won't go into mm-hmm. uh, other stuff that religion deals with it sure. outside of science but um to trying to come understand the physical world um or what will happen if you do x um the theoretical physicists were the first to be able to say let's both imagine uh, as well as philosophers would be another category right they say okay well let's mm-hmm. this um the theoretical physicist is the first thinker who also is very interested in seeing whether he's right or trying to prove whether he's right. Uh, well, yeah. So the question is, I mean, you know, of course, Aristotle was interested in, in uh-huh, uh-huh. figuring out whether he was right. right. But the, the question is what kind of But he was an methods, experimentalist, right? Or- well, what kind of methods and approaches would be, are, are considered reasonable for uh, checking to see whether you're right. right? Um, so for instance, with, um, uh, you know, Aristotelian style philosophers, the, 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 the idea of um, constructing a special machine to check whether your idea is right would not make any sense at all because the, the thing you're trying to understand with that kind of philosophy is the natural state of the world. What does the world do on its own? So if you build a machine, that by definition is no longer a natural thing. And now you're not studying the world anymore. You're studying so your like machine. What's one specific thing that he might be trying to understand that a oh, machine so, would screw it up? Uh, so for instance, um, the, the classic example of this in the 17th century is um, – uh, the the air pump and the barometer, right? So if you've got so a barometer is at least primitive ones. Um, you've got a, a dish of something like mercury, and then uh, you fill a uh, glass vial with mercury and invert it so the the mer- and put it into the dish so the mercury can flow down into the dish. Mm-hmm. And the mercury only flows a little ways down. And then there's an empty spot at the top of the glass, right? So this is, you can see this in like modern thermometers and things, right? right? Um, and an the question, gap. an air gap, exactly. Uh, and the great question is, what is that thing? What, what is that hole? What is that spot, right? So the Aristotelians say, uh, 
it's not like anything worth thinking about, right? You, you've created this this strange entity. Um, you know, why why would you expect it to yield? to the the powers of natural philosophy because it's not it's not a natural thing right it's it's it, you just made this weird thing and why would you expect it to follow the rules uh, that the rest of nature follows um so you could have you were breaking the rules of nature the, the rules of nature exactly. could be broken that's right Yep, you Whoa. can you can mess with these things, um, and that was called and and there's even you know very simple things like um, like a pendulum for instance, which with modern physics you know is a great way to kind of distill the laws of motion, but to Aristotelian physics a pendulum's motion is totally insane. It's not natural in any way. It's this fantastically complicated thing, and the idea that you would try to understand a pendulum is sort of a waste of time. Right? You're not actually understanding nature. So You're they, just understanding what that person, what the pendulum maker did. And like, who cares about that? Right? Yeah, so they didn't think that there were any um, rules. Well, I guess they even, even if you could figure out, oh, this is how the pendulum, these are the mathematics, or this is how it operates. Uh, right. you, you pull it back this far and it swings almost mm-hmm. the same amount and so forth. Right. Um, they would say, well, that's just its own rules. Outside, yeah, outside who cares, right? Yeah, so that so the idea, for instance, oh, I've never that heard of this the the idea that um, studying a pendulum would help you understand, uh, say, the motion of the planets, right, uh, is insane, right? That's that's not that's not. They're different things. They're totally different things. Okay. Um, so if you want to study nature, you study nature, and the idea of making an artificial situation, what we would call an experiment, just doesn't give you any useful information for so understanding a, the nature. Getting of back to Star Trek, it, that was Aristotle had a prime directive. Yes, that's right. Don't don't mess with nature. Don't once you intervene, you've mm-hmm. ruined your ability to understand what it is. Right. Exactly. Um, and then the big and so modern experimentation is isn't wor- isn't something worth spending your time on in that in that scheme of things right so it's not that you know people often want to say you know aristotle was so stupid why didn't he just set up a experiment with you know this falling thing and this uh, and you say no he wasn't stupid at all he just had a totally different way of thinking about the problem yeah. so in, in, unless you think that studying um, artificial situations is useful then you don't do experiments and actually you know could i feel like the case could be made that um in terms of the entire long project of figuring out how the world works, mm-hmm. that maybe he was right to say, look, um, maybe he didn't, yeah, like he didn't understand it this way, but you could say, we need to understand how nature is by itself so mm-hmm. that then we can get to man's, you know, when man intervenes, how it interacts with that. Yeah, but that's a separate thing, right? The idea that we can just put that to the side for the moment. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, and we, usually, we yeah. were outside nature. Well, you see, and this is a, a, a funny thing, is that Aristotle gets blamed for being anthropomorphic sometimes, or anthropocentric, excuse me, sure. um, because he put humans at the center of the universe. But I think that's not quite right in that, um, you know, so humans are part of nature for Aristotle, but our creations aren't. Um and, you know, you shouldn't, so you shouldn't, if you want to understand nature, then you try to understand nature. If you want to understand wagon wheels, then go be a wagon smith. 
or whatever the word is. Right, right, right. So the satellites, our satellites going around the planets, are working in, are they're working more in an Aristotelian mode because they're just observing? You mean the the modern, right. our modern, oh, oh, like our spacecraft? Um, well, like that's an, an interesting question, actually, right? Yeah, how much do they intervene? Um, that's actually kind of a deep question because there's an important sense in which you're right. They are passive. They're just, you know, the... Um, well, does Juno radar isn't really, count as passive? Isn't really experimenting. Well, and that's I think that's the the kind of question is um, surely not right because you're because you're poking it. You're poking whatever you're studying with the radar. Like poke if I wanted to poke a, a tree with a stick, mm-hmm. um, and Aristotle would probably be okay with that. I think. It's more uh, like maybe radar is more like you sh- you're actually shining a light on something, right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably right. Um, whereas if we built a device, uh, whereas let's say. Um, one of the Mars rovers that scoops up a chunk of Mars and, you know, dumps chemicals on it to check and see if there's life in it. That's more like an experiment, right? That's more intervening. Right. So he would say, you know, he he might say if he had to choose, he would say Mm -hmm. that the orbiting satellites, um, all, you know, the great ones like uh, Voyager and uh, Cassini and Juno and all the others, (laughs) Pioneer, um, Mariner, I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, <laughs> Venera, no, not okay. So, mm-hmm. Venera land. Venera was a Russian satellite, right? That landed on Venus. And Briefly, yes. That would violate the Aristotelian, but, but violate Aristotle's prime directive. Um, and the Mars rovers are basically yeah. wasting their time. <laughs> uh, it's sure, certainly. Um, I, I think he, you know Aristotle. Interestingly, you know he. Um, he did talk about a lot of things that he had never seen. So, for instance, he takes reports from travelers, okay, Ooh. people, he, you know, he never went to Africa, but he took reports from people who did um, and said, you know, there are these weird animals with giant ears and long noses and that never forget things and like yeah. to eat nuts and stuff. You know, he'd never seen an elephant, but he reported them. So in that sense, so, you know, if the Mars rover is just like um, a traveler to North Africa, then that's probably fine. But if somebody goes to North Africa <laughs> or some other exotic place from the point of view of, a, of an Athenian. Was it right? um, so yeah. the driving around part of the rover and the taking pictures part of the rover, he'd be okay with. Right. But the other yeah. thing, like it scoops things up and it boils mm-hmm. them or, you know, puts them through. That's right. Messing with things yeah. is, is not okay. It's shooting um, lasers and- into rocks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. And, and that's what, you know, so the, usually um, the, the shift from this kind of non-intervening to an intervening mode is usually blamed on uh, people like Francis Bacon, um, who says, who tries to make the case that the intervening in nature is a good idea. So he said he has all of these actually terrible metaphors of like um, putting the screws to nature or like putting nature down on a table and tearing it apart or interrogating nature. Um, I mean, there are these, these extremely violent metaphors uh, about how you understand things. And, you and you know, you see that this is, you know, he's um, he's a rough contemporary with people like Vesalius, who are some of, you know, the, the early anatomists who are cutting people open and trying mm-hmm. to figure out kind of what's inside. Um, but they wouldn't say they're so, putting the so screws this, to, the, to their patient. They would not. But, but, to oh, a but I mean, again, it, to a cadaver, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a deeply violent thing. Yeah. Um, 
and that's actually one of the if you've ever seen uh, Vesalius's um, anatomical books from the, the 16th century is one of the things he he does is he doesn't sanitize the process at all. Mm. So you have these, it's not, it's not a just nice clean skeleton, but he'll show you the different stages of dissection. So you'll get, you know, a piece of muscle hanging here and viscera and, uh, you know, he, he draws his instruments in great detail and you can see, right. It looks like butcher's tools. There's nothing refined about this at all. Um, but so, so weirdly, this is not, you know, when, um, when we talk about, you know, experimentalism, like as a way of interrogating nature, people want to talk about things like, you know, how do you calibrate your instruments and what's your procedure? Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually a much deeper epistemological problem of, do you think it's worthwhile to, or d- does intervening in nature produce worthwhile knowledge? Right. Are those things worth knowing or is that something that you just leave to the engineers and the architects? Right. And so just to be clear, he, it sounds like Aristotle would say figuring out, you know, make a machine, figure out how it works, make a better machine. All that stuff is great, yep. but it's, a, it's just a totally separate world. It's not nature. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it's not, as he would say, to say that's not philosophy. Um, and that's, that's great if that's what you're interested in, but obviously it's way better to be a philosopher. That is a great insult. That's what I'm going to say. Well, what do you think of, you know, about this or that? Well, that's not philosophy. It's not Mm -hmm. even worth it. Well, you see, uh, uh, the crazy thing is that once upon a time, that's an unbelievably powerful insult, right? (laughs) Yeah. Why should I? That's not even philosophy. Why should I care about what you're doing? Right. Uh, and now, of course, the reverse is true, right? If you want to insult that's a right. physicist, you say, uh, you're just doing philosophy. Right. Or anybody almost except a philosopher. <laughs> except even a philosopher. a philosopher. Oh, that's philosophy. <laughs> um, I want to give a shout out to <laughs> friends. Remember, we, we did one podcast with um, these friends of mine who uh, work at the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. Oh, yeah, those are great folks. Makers of fabulous toys that Mm -hmm. uh, tongue in cheek um, toys for smart people, whatever it was. Yeah, I've got my scientist finger puppets. Yeah, that's right. Is that that's like that's a good joke, right? Is to call yourself an unemployed philosopher. Of course, they're unemployed. Uh, uh, Even though I should say, and actually, there was some not to, to veer into politics, but there was a national politician recently who said, uh, when talking about like education reform is we need less uh, philosophy majors uh. in the world. Um, so this of course got the philosophers angry and somebody went and crunched some numbers and it turns out that philosophers, you know, 10 years out of graduation, philosophy majors, sorry, right. 10 years out of graduation tend to make much more money and have much stable, much more stable jobs than like 90% of other majors. Wow. So it's actually, so I should say for, for the, the, the young proto-philosophers out there who have been feeling insulted while we've been talking. Um, a philosophy degree is actually a pretty good base for getting by in the world, so don't don't feel bad about that. Right. Although somebody could make the really mean case, then I guess that, well, they shouldn't be... Who's paying these people to do what? Well, I should say... Actually, taking money so out of the you, economy that could go to other things. Well, that may be because many philosophy majors become lawyers, so... But they have a lot of... I don't know that they actually have a lot of free time. But let's just say they do. And I'm going to guess the philosophers okay, yeah. do put plenty of money back into. Oh, no question. Yeah, that's right. They're, they sit there. The philosophers are super smart people. All the tobacco um, that goes into all those pipes. 
<laughs> yeah, I actually just read yesterday that uh, turned out um, Einstein loved cigars, but mm. his his wife would only allow him uh, one cigar a day. So his friends would sneak him cigars like when they came to talk about physics and things. So he had this secret stash of cigars in his desk. That, that is awesome. We're running out of time. And so I just wanted to oh, take, really? point out there how, you know, huge fundamental discoveries, breakthroughs in human understanding of the universe in which we live depended on a small supply chain of smuggled cigars. <laughs> that's right you like the gps on your phone yeah. it's because of smuggled cigars yeah. in 1920s berlin now if you know if, if philip morris or the great tobacco uh, evil empires uh, you know that would be a great ad for them but uh, uh that's true actually so can we copyright that or trademark it in some way so nobody steals that yes yes to keep it out of the wrong hands actually that's why uh, that'll that'll be our our prime directive is keeping good advertising out of the hands of the tobacco companies. <laughs> well, this is, this was really fascinating. I gotta say, okay. anytime okay. I mean, you, you know so much, and uh, <laughs> to get to just veer off, I just never afraid that there's some, you know, there's something incredible in these woods in which I'm wandering <laughs> off into. Um, very cool. I didn't know all this about Aristotle. And all this. I look forward to, to exploring that more. Oh, totally. There's always more Aristotle. Um, and uh, oh, the so final what-the-if thing, as I would say, I, I feel like the ultimate outcome of this would be uh, that um, if Aristotle were around today and he became the head of NASA, um, he would approve the satellites, uh, but the Mars rover program, I'm sorry, you're canceled. Well, it might, might be a little dodgy. Um, I'd say he'd, he would certainly um, cancel things like the Large Hadron Collider, and Fermilab, right? That's all totally pointless right. kind of stuff. Right. Um, so maybe he and, did have some minions yeah. in the Congress. Uh, that, no, we've, we've got some lurking Aristotelians. Well, they took yeah. down the super, what was it, the super collider. The superconducting super collider? Yeah, yeah so he'd, he'd get rid of that. He'd get rid of, um, well, actually a lot of, say, uh, the National Institutes of Health, because you wouldn't, you, you know, he'd get rid of like molecular biology and genetic engineering, um, and you know, he'd retask all the biologists from CRISPR to go look at rhinoceros, rhinoceros, oh. right? Right. He says, just go look at things and see what they do. Um, so we'd have more Jane Goodalls uh, and less um, Watson and Cricks. Well, then, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, yeah. uh, in which observation is uh, also our prime directive, um, I think, mm -hmm. you know, I, 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 all those other things, I'd really hate to have him in office, Aristotle in office, but <laughs> I might have to vote for him because I'm pretty sure that he would give an enormous amount of funding to documentaries. At least science documentaries, and that's what yeah, really matters. that's all that's good enough for me. Yeah. The Aristotle channel. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, Discovery. Um, wonderful. This was this was a total blast. That was good. Um, I hope everyone out there enjoyed it as well. Um, keep on tuning back. Uh, tuning back. Tuning back. You don't really tune. Whatever you do, subscribe. Take care, Matt. Have a wonderful, a wonderful Manhattan day. Take care. <laughs>